values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. The expectation of the Fed and what they're going to do, it's not so much about raising interest rates. That's a huge part of it. We talked earlier about this. It's also the report on the future and what they may have to do and what they see coming. Their countdown to this Fed decision, and uh, and it doesn't seem as if Wall Street is necessarily anticipating anything dramatic because they haven't seen big swings in what's happening. The Dow was up a little bit today, up 113 points. So we haven't seen – it's almost like a wait-and-see approach. But the significance of this across our economy and what's happened and why it's happened. And we, I, we, I played some of this earlier. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I want you to hear about this. Why would, the, why would the Fed, why do they raise interest rates? What they're trying to do is slow the economy to sort of choke off demand and push prices lower. And they've said they're about to do anything to get it there. And that even means pushing the economy into a mild and short recession. So uh, they, that's the part of it that gets me is uh, I would say to you very honestly, in, in all candor, I think we are already in a mild recession, um, pushing us into a mild and short lived recession. That's the scary thing to hear from this administration. And uh, again, it's not always about throwing stones, but history matters to people when you've been wrong over and over and over and over again. You may be right one time, but it's, you're going to have to really prove it to people. This administration has gotten it wrong about the economy for two years. They just have. They were warned by experts within their administration, in their political party, outside of their political party. Experts have been saying that we were on a fast track, that we were headed toward a recession. And the thing about it is where the, the a lot of the American people believe the administration is because of the way that the economy had been going – in spite of COVID, but how the economy had been going, the idea of us going from the rocket ship of an economy we had to a recession seemed impossible. Now, is it all the fault of the president? I don't think it's all his fault. It isn't. But their reaction, their slow reaction, their um, not severe enough reaction, they did too little, way too late. This is what's caused a lot of this problem. And um, not reacting to what happens in the world. Yesterday, I talked at length about the idea that people's energy bills this winter are going to go way up. So you're going to find here, and we we pray for the winter time here because we want it to cool off because it's so hot in the summers. But for people where they are going to be, the winters are very cold and very difficult. Cold and hungry is what a lot of this country is going to be. There are going to be people that find themselves having to choose between dinner on the table or heating their homes, but they're not going to be able to do a lot of both. And this is where we look at to the leadership in this country to offset some of this. How in the world do we as a nation make this happen? Now, if we're going to go, and my prediction is going to be there's going to be a lot of federal money being made available for people and relief money being made available that other people are going to have to pay for. It's a problem. This is a serious issue for people. At least it is for me. It's a serious issue that we are going to rob Peter to pay Paul, and no one sees that as a problem. Well, it is a big problem. Our economy is the strongest in the world, and yet we continue to see things like this. Inflation is going to make it very difficult for people when businesses can't borrow money anymore because it's too expensive. It's just – it is bad on so many levels for families. 
And I have been I've been talking about this for so long, and and it just gets to be disappointing when now we hear them say that they want to move. They may have to move us into a slow and short lived uh, recession. It's just not, you know, it's just not the way things are. Um, they're, they also talked about the three, the expectation of this raise. We're expecting it to be that three quarters of a percent. Some Wall Street analysts believe we could see a full percentage point rise as the Fed ramps up its fight against inflation. We know that it hasn't helped much. This would be the fifth interest rate hike of 2022. We still have inflation at 8.3 percent. And I've used this example um, when you are when you have an illness. Uh, cancer is the one that comes to mind, but any illness when you are when you when you have something wrong with you, the longer you let's, let's not even go with cancer. If you cut yourself, um, if how many times when you were a kid when you cut yourself, your mom put neosporin on it or something with a bandage so it didn't get infected. And if you didn't do anything with it, what happened when it got infected? It became a lot more painful, longer and harder to treat. Um, you know, you can you can have an infection that turns into blood poisoning. All of these things are horrible things for people that if you intervene early aren't necessary. Cancer treatment. What's the big thing about cancer is early detection matters. That's why they tell men get screened for for colon cancer and prostate cancer get screened at a younger age ladies get a breast exam you know to catch things early because so many of these can be treated and they're less invasive the earlier in the uh in the onset you treat it that you catch it and treat it and the economy in that regard what's happening here this is where the problem lies the warning signs were there the administration was told they kept telling us whether you believe it's for political reasons i think it is for political reasons to a certain degree, telling the American people there's nothing to worry about. This is all politics. We're not headed toward a recession. We're not in a recession. This isn't happening. And everybody kept pointing their finger. Not me. What my I just give you my opinion. I'm talking about the experts that kept pointing at the Fed a year ago and saying, you got to do something, you got to do something. And then it was, well, prices are rising because of supply chain. Prices are rising because of of uh, Putin and Putin's price hike and this and that. And they just watched it fester and nothing was being done. So now we're being told the Fed is having to be much more aggressive and it may push us into a, a slight and short lived recession. Does anybody believe that? I'm hearing people saying, and, and by the way, it's not just here. The world's being affected by this as well. And, you know, there's one person that's predicting, uh, and they call him uh, Mr. Doom and Gloom. Um, he is predicting, he predicted the 08 crash and is predicting 18 months worth of a severe recession that could alter things around the world. Um, and again, uh, to be fair, I look at this and I think it's something to be navigated and that um, we will survive. I'm not, I am not somebody that is, uh, that believes the world is imploding. I don't believe that at all, especially here. It's America. We will survive. We will thrive. We will become better. But it's going to be long and hard for people. When people trying to feed their families, trying to heat their homes, trying to put fuel in their vehicles, gas prices ticked up for the first time in 99 days, breaking a 99-day drop streak. So what happens in that regard? We were told that OPEC is going to slow down production. We are still pumping oil out of the strategic reserve. How long is that going to last? What does that do on a national security level when Vladimir Putin threatened the Western world with nuclear war? And he said, I am not bluffing. 
are we making moves that we could cost us if we aren't very careful? And it's something that people have concerns about the policies of this administration. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them for that. Um, I was going to talk about the the special master, but I want to go back to a topic from earlier today. I want to talk about student loan forgiveness. It couples itself with what we're seeing here. So we're going to get to student loan forgiveness coming up next. Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Interesting conversation with people, and I love the debate. Um, it's, uh, just as a side note, we've been asked this question before. Why don't you take phone calls? Um, I don't take phone calls for a couple of different reasons, and one of them is for the in the interest of time and clarity, I like to do business on social media. So I invite you to email me, mbroomhead at ktar.com, or hit me up on Facebook, hit me up on Instagram Messenger, uh, Twitter, at broomheadktar, um, because I think we can have an exchange there where I can actually answer you one-on-one on social media, but I also can get a feel for what other people are thinking on a topic. And I say that because there are a lot of people I talk to on a regular basis, or at least through Messenger, that we've never met face-to-face. And you kind of develop what kind of a friendship you get to know a little bit about each other. And it's it's a very strange conversation I'm having with some people. Um, I disagree with them quite often, but not to the level that it goes in this. And it's about student loan forgiveness. I think student loan forgiveness, I'm insulted by student loan forgiveness, and I will explain why. I didn't go to college. Um, and they say, well, just because you didn't get it. No, you're right. And not just because I didn't get it. I don't think it's right to not set parameters on ability to pay. Student loan forgiveness is based on household income, not your ability to pay, number one. Number two, you don't even have to have graduated from high school or from college to have your loans forgiven. So you could have gone, screwed around, got thrown out, dropped out, whatever, and you get your loans forgiven. That's not the way, A, that's not good for anybody. Now, we're talking, I want you to, just for a moment, there are also people that are saying this is going to add to inflation. The White House has talked about their anti-inflation movement, and part of it is debt reduction. And they talk about the enormous amount of debt that's being reduced. And then they say, well, we're going to pay for the student loan forgiveness with all this money we're saving, with our debt, you know, with our reducing the deficit. It is a bunch of double talk just from that standpoint. But the federal government offers loans to people to go to college. They're not screaming about tuition going down. They're screaming at private industry, the oil industry, evil profiteering. I see that on social media every day. The obscene profits of the oil companies. Now, I'm in a weird place because I actually am an advocate for education. I think higher education for people is it advantageous. But if you and I, I walk with me on this. If you go and you decide you want to get a degree and let's say you take out student loans and your degree is in archaeology, your degree is in anthropology, your degree is in philosophy, your avenues to make enough money to pay those loans back are very slim. You have to keep going to school, get a master's degree, and end up teaching in those areas, usually to make a lot of money in those areas. To make enough money where that investment in the education, you now make enough money to pay for that education. 
If you're out there, you go you go to school and you get a basic like a business degree. Um, nothing wrong with that. But if you think you're starting salary when you come out into the business world with that degree from Arizona State or U of A or or NAU or any place. If you think your starting salary is going to be enough to start biting off big chunks of those loans, it probably isn't. On the other side of this, you look at some of the degrees, oh, you know, Cronkite and what the, the journalists that they churn out. Um, you've got the W.P. Carey School of Business Management at, at ASU. You've got um, such great programs in their engineering school. And you've got the law school over at U of A, the medical school. It's now you're talking about people. If you go to nursing school, uh, GCU's got a great nursing program. There's uh, and uh, they all have great programs. But I'm just thinking of some of them that I know of off the top of my head. When you go to a school and you realize when I graduate with this degree, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to be making really good money. That piece of paper has elevated me to an economic level that I would not have been without this degree. And if you're not making wise decisions like that, why is it on the backs of other people to pay for it? And the idea that you're a contributor to society because that education means something, I will say again, well, that's, we've got to be able to use that, that same way of thinking across the board. The businessman or the businesswoman that takes out an SBA loan where they are expanding their business, they are employing people immediately, they are putting people to work. They are contributing to the economy immediately. We're not going to forgive their loans, are we? And that's where this and, and the problem that scares me is they might. Now you are now you are going full on in the direction of being under the thumb of the government where they're paying for your school. They're paying for your loans they're, We don't want to be that nation either. I don't like to see anybody fail. But there are winners and losers in every game. There are people that through no fault of their own or completely by their own doing fail. It is a part of life. It's what you do when you fail. What do you do when you get up and move on? There are so many questions about the people that have paid their student loans. There are so many questions about people that didn't take student loans. They worked. How about the people that get the GI Bill? How about the people that said, I swear an oath, I'm going to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign or domestic. I'm willing to risk my life. I'm willing to be shipped all over the world in the United States military in service for my country so that I can earn the GI Bill and have my college paid for when I'm done serving my country. What do you say to them? What do you say to them? On so many levels, this is wrong, I think, morally. I think it's fiscally wrong. Younger people in Arizona like it. Older people, unfortunately, I'm in that group, older people don't like it. I just think it's wrong for America. I don't think it's, it, it helps the people that they're trying to help, and I think it hurts too many people. I don't like it at all. Uh, coming up in just a moment, um, we're going to talk about uh, the Phoenix Police Department. What are they doing about school threats? We talked this up a little bit earlier. I think it is a very interesting conversation, so we'll get to it next. Values, 
and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, it's time to subscribe to the Mike Broomhead Show podcast. It's very simple to do. Never miss a minute of the show. Listen at your convenience. It's a great way to consume it. And it's brought to you this week by my good friend, Carol Royce, Keller Williams Realty East Valley. Get a higher price selling your home. Get guaranteed offers. Go to higherprice.com. It's higherprice.com. Um, Phoenix police, what are we doing about recent school threats? So I, I, I mentioned this earlier. I talked earlier. Uh, there needs to be a comprehensive approach. The state of Arizona has allocated a bunch of money for school security. A lot of it has to do with entry points and choke points for getting onto a campus. Uh, that's part of it. I think it also has to do with a security assessment within. There has to be people on a campus that are in charge of assessing all threats and documenting all threats so that they can start building and looking at who the possible threats are. Um, the FBI was tasked, and I've learned this from my friends that were in the FBI, the, uh, the Hoopers. I've talked about them very often. Uh, and the, F- the FBI was retasked and repurposed after 9-11 as an organization that was to assess domestic terrorist threats. So people in this country that weren't always citizens of this country, but people in this country that are making threats and viable threats and the threat assessment of how serious are the threats, how viable are the threats, are, are they immediate threats? And, you know, you don't always get it right, but I can guarantee you they've gotten it a lot more right than they have wrong. We only have heard about in the times where they didn't stop a threat. But they have been amazingly accurate at keeping and stopping a lot of these threats. You don't hear about them when they're averted, usually. We only hear about them when they get through. We have a system in place in many places where we document things, and we should be doing this with school threats. Kids are doing it online. They think it's a joke. That's the other part of this I've mentioned so many times. There also has to be a concerted um, movement to eliminate the jokes so that when someone makes a threat, you're pretty sure it's a serious threat. Because we all remember, I think, well, if you're my age, you remember, uh, in the late 1970s, I believe it was either late 1970s, or early 1980s. But there was a, a push by the FAA around airports around the country saying that making jokes about guns and bombs and hijacking is not a joke. Signs all over the airport. And in, so for all of you that are too young to remember this, you used to be able to walk all the way to the gate with a passenger. You didn't have to stop at security. The matter of fact, security didn't happen until you got to the gate. So you could walk with someone and sit until the plane was being boarded with someone at the airport. That all changed after 9-11, of course. But um, they had signs everywhere. It's not a joking matter. It's not funny. And it happened in my family, unfortunately. Um, And somebody in my family, there's a sign 10 feet away, cracked a joke about somebody getting on the airplane. Did you remember to pack your gun or something like that? And everybody that worked at the gate, all of the employees of the airport, shrugged their shoulders and looked like, are you joking? Are you kidding? They had to pull the guy's bag off the plane that was checked. They had to go through and screen the bag that he was carrying on. He got pulled off the flight. And the person that made the comment was taken into a room and interviewed for a couple of hours by the FBI. Why? It's not a joking matter. There's nothing funny about it. Now, there were no charges ever levied. There was never a threat. But at that time, every comment like that was considered a threat because they were trying to send a message. It's not funny. Don't do it. And I think we're in the same situation with school threats. Now, you've got kids on social media. Is a kid mouthing off because he or she is angry? 
is a kid kidding and just trying, you know, kids try to stir up trouble. They called in uh, a couple of people. They called in bomb threats, I believe, at ASU recently. College kids. They're not immune from being idiots. Let's be honest. And, but there's going to be serious um, repercussions for people that do stuff like that. And if we don't take it seriously, if we don't send a message that if you say it, we are going to act as if you mean it, then it's not going to stop. But those are the unfounded threats. What about kids that are emotionally disturbed? What about kids that have something going on where a fight where we when we were in school, kids would fight. You'd fight at the bus stop. And now we know that kids are bringing guns to school at younger and younger ages. We have to figure out a threat assessment, someone at the school that deals with threat assessment at, at the real level. That, that this is – we're boots on the ground. We know who these kids are that are making the threats. We know who the violent kids are on our campus because sometimes now you're able to intervene before it actually becomes a real issue. And Phoenix Police Department is now documenting in this story, they have documentation of how many school threats have been made in the last year, in the last six months, or last couple of months, and that's great news. I will tell you that having someone document that and keep track, not just of numbers of how many threats have been made, who's making the threat, how did they make the threat, how many times have they made a threat, was it against an individual, is it against the school in general? And that's the way you start to build what you know is a file of these are the threats we're getting. These are who are responsible for those threats. And we have to keep our eye on these people because these people are the ones that are voicing to different people, whether it's social media or person to person, a desire to commit an act of violence. And it's what, you know, the FBI did it with with anti-terrorism. And I think locally you're going to see school districts go to something like that where there is a threat assessor on campus that will then involve the police if it ever rises to the level of being necessary. And I think it's a a good move. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a necessary move. Uh, Along with the other school security measures that will be put in where there's only one way in and one way out, school locks, automatic locks on doors, a notification system to let people know that there is a threat locking the school down, making sure that everybody knows where they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to be there. I think those are all viable things. They're all good things. Um, Is the uh, COVID-19 pandemic over? Now, the reason why I'm asking that question is there continues to be that conversation because of what the president said on 60 Minutes. But I also have a number for you on fraud. How much money was stolen in COVID-19 money that they're now trying to recover? The number is staggering. I'll give you the numbers coming up here in just a moment. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks again for being here. Appreciate it. Comedian Louis Black is headed to the Celebrity Theater on Saturday, October 1st. Limited tickets are still available, but you could win a pair. Head over to the contest page at KTAR.com. Want you to hear a little bit. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre was on MSNBC, was... uh, Talking about the president, this is part of the issue that people have that are not just diehard supporters of the White House. These are the questions that people ask. The president of the United States was asked in a 60 Minutes interview, is the pandemic over? And he said, yeah, the pandemic's over. And he talked about the three years since we've had a Detroit auto show and other things. Well, that doesn't sit well with the narrative from a lot of people. 
including the people that want billions more dollars in COVID relief money. If the pandemic's over, why does the federal government want billions of dollars in COVID relief money? So Corrine Jean-Pierre was on on MSNBC trying to walk back what the president said. What we saw during that interview, uh, 60-minute interview, when he made those comments, he was walking through uh, the the Detroit uh, car show, the halls of the Detroit car show, and he was looking around. We have to remember the last time that they had held that event was three years ago. Even as we're talking about UNGA, the president's going to speak shortly, as I just mentioned, we that hasn't been held in, in person for about three years as well. So we are in a different time. He's been very consistent about that. And the reason why is because we are now prepared. Now we're prepared. Of course we are. <laughs> he goes on. We are now ready. We know how to deal with uh, this pandemic. It is now m- more manageable. It's not as disruptive as it's been uh, in the prior in the prior years. And so and it is because of what this president has done on day one. OK, so l- let's just back this up a little bit, because it is really funny that um the vaccine that now didn't work as well as everybody thought, they're going to start giving credit for that vaccine, I think, to Trump pretty soon because it wasn't as effective as they thought. But that was there were a couple of things that were done in the Trump administration ended up working out pretty well. And one of them was logistics that the federal government, while the development of vaccines was happening on a couple of different sources, the production of those vaccines were already happening before the uh, they were given the go ahead. So that the day they were given the go-ahead, all they had to be was shipped. That helped save some time. So let's give some credit and share some credit all the way around. The Biden administration listened to the teacher organizations that said we need to mask people in schools. And we look at the destructive nature of what happened with the masks. But that's not the issue here. They want billions of dollars more, billions of dollars in COVID relief. And they are now telling you how it's not as destructive as it was before. It's not as disruptive as it was before. We're in a much better place than we were before, but yet they want billions of tax dollars. I give you this. 47 people have been charged in the U.S. uh, by U.S. authorities say is the largest case, the largest case yet of pandemic fraud, accusing defendants and brazen scheme to swindle millions of dollars from the program intended for low income children and using it to enrich themselves. Authorities say $250 million ultimately was stolen from this federal program in this issue. The officials repeatedly described the fraud as brazen and decried that it involved a program intended to feed children. These children were simply invented. They made kids up to provide meals to kids that didn't exist. Um. So I'm going to go back to an old adage that I've had, and this is where I talk about the absolute inefficiency of government. Um, And it happens in businesses. When businesses do assessments, this is what they run up against. They look for waste. Every business I know, I take a restaurant, for example, and I love talking about restaurants uh, because I love going to restaurants. Um, I was just at uh, Buck and Rider recently, and that group of restaurants, LGO, Buck and Rider, Chelsea's Kitchen, all in the Arcadia area, and they have more, but that those three for sure. Um, 
they're successful for a number of things. But one of the things that tears away at the profitability of a company, and in this case, restaurant, is waste. You have to have somebody that knows how to order product, fresh product. So there's always fresh product available to cook, to feed to your guests. You don't want to overorder fresh product because then you're adding to the amount of waste of food that has to be thrown away or given away to, to food banks or whatever, but it's taking away from your bottom line. Labor waste and knowing when to send people home. You can't have everybody on the floor when you're not busy. Um, all of these things, keeping people busy, doing their side work while they're working. There are a lot of different aspects that lead to waste in a restaurant. And waste is a profit killer. So good restaurateurs are very good at hiring people that manage that. That part of being a chef or running a kitchen is not just coming up with great food. It is also knowing how to order and what to order and when to order and how to store it and how to use it to maximize profitability so that there isn't waste. There is none of that in the government. It just doesn't happen. You are, As a matter of fact, the opposite happens. If you have a budget – in many, uh, and this isn't just federal, this is in a lot of government entities, and anybody out there that's listening that works in a government job and works in a department of the government can back me up that this exists a lot. You have a budget for this year, and you've been very well managed. You manage your labor costs, you manage your material costs, you manage your costs very, very well, and you come in under budget. Well, next year they cut your budget. So everybody says, better spend that money, I don't want my budget cut next year. So it's 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 just rife with waste. And when you don't have oversight, when you are talking about the federal government can not only just give you money, but they can print money and they're confiscating money from the taxpayers. I'm not saying they're bad people that work in government. There are really good people that work in the government. The machine itself is flawed. They don't have a bottom line that they have to adhere to like a business owner does. So when you have billions of dollars being doled out in these uh, in these uh, programs, who's watching? I guarantee you, if it was coming out of your bonus, you'd be watching. And this is where the problem lies with this, with all of this, all of this fraud and everything else. And now we're saying we need more money in COVID relief. That I just think it's such a wrongheaded approach. Um, I'm not saying the pandemic's over either, but if we're out of the woods, if it's not as destructive or disruptive as it was before, why do you need all this money? And is anybody asking that question? That's where you're seeing this defense of the, of the pandemic being over. That and school districts are still clamoring for masks. Hard to back that up when this is happening. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, uh, how many people on the terror watch list were caught crossing the southern border just in the month of August? I'm going to give you the number. It's going to shock you. Next.